You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Well, busy week again on Capitol Hill, where the White House is now actively involved in negotiating to get President Biden's Build Back Better Act over the finish line to fill us in on where things stand is Mariana Sotomayor, Washington Post congressional reporter. Mariana, welcome back to Washington Post Live, or to First Look, actually. (laughs) Um, All right, so where are, actually, what are the top issues that remain to be resolved? Well, Biden yesterday during that CNN town hall gave away a lot of where he yeah. is, where Mansion and Cinema are, and they, of course, are those two senators who, as Biden put it, everyone can be a president in a 50-50 Senate at this point when you're talking about reconciliation. So, you know, a number of things that have been more or less put in place that were questions during the during this week are really that child tax credit provision that is going to be staying in. Uh, Biden says that Manchin's request to means test to have work requirements likely is actually not going to be a part of that. The question that remains, though, is whether it is going to be extended for one year or more. Biden had previously floated it would only be one year, and that really irritated a number of Democrats in the caucus since they want to see that made permanent. There are a number of other things that he's also mentioned, like Medicare expansion, for example. That remains in question. That, of course, is uh, Senator Bernie Sanders' huge promise on the campaign trail. He, of course, wants to do Medicare for all, but he was at least proposing at least some expansions to dental, vision, and hearing. Biden says that there could be some vouchers for for, for dental work. Uh, those provisions, of course, still being worked out as in terms of how much money to give. Um, and then there's also some other provisions when it comes to paid family leave. That's been a big thing for Democrats who really want to go on the campaign trail and talk about how they've been helping women and families. That time frame was proposed at 12 weeks, and it's now down to four weeks. Biden saying he can't move any more than those four weeks. And it's also worth pointing out climate. That is a big, big, big thing for Democrats who, of course, have been on the campaign trail and promising to really cut emissions, try and curb as much climate change. Biden actually pointing out that a provision that Manchin was really against, a clean energy provision, likely still going to be in there, noting that Manchin has said he he could be convinced. So Biden and, of course, like Sure, a number of Democratic members really working mansion on that front. Mm-hmm. You know, Mariana, the, the thing about that that town hall last night is, and, and you walk through all of this uh, really well, is how specific the president was about every provision. And you as a congressional reporter, I mean, you've been walking those halls and trying to squeeze out information for weeks now, but there's a president of the United States sort of drawing, drawing the outlines of where things are. How, explain to the audience how important what the president did last night was and the impact you think that will have on the action on the Hill today. Yeah, like you said, so many reporters last night joking on Twitter, hey, I've been wanting and I've been reporting this out and the president basically just said it out loud. And you know, having covered Biden on the campaign trail, he very much, it's actually not rare to have him 
kind of say everything that you've been reporting on uh, at some point in time. I actually didn't think it was that surprising as much as many people have found it to be because that is almost, you know, when he's feeling very confident about things, he's very willing to chat, very willing to go out there and talk. If anything, it's usually his own press team and those close to him who have to rein him in from giving too much away during negotiations or, you know, any conversation. Uh, So what it really means is that the Democrats are getting close. They're not bluffing when earlier this week on Capitol Hill, we did see and sense some optimism among the Democratic caucus that they're getting closer. And you are now not just seeing that, but really hearing that from the president. And the president's involvement has been a lot more active with these members, really calling them up, trying to get them to a deal, and also saying these are where we can find compromise rather than in the last couple of weeks, he was hearing a lot from members, asking them what they wanted. Now he's saying, this is what we can achieve. How do you feel about those things? But at this point, it's really time to compromise on a lot of these mm-hmm. points. So, so Mariana, then, and, and I know the president's remarks uh, Thursday night were sort of late. So, you know, if, if you haven't been able to reach out to your, your sources, you know, let me know. But has, has there been any reaction from congressional moderates, from congressional, let me, from Democratic moderates and Democratic progressives to what the president said? And is there any indication that folks are still moving in, in the same direction, even with the president being very specific on where he sees things right now? Yeah, like you said this morning, I've been texting a lot of different uh, aides and members trying to get a sense of where they are. But we have known at least since early this week a lot of these positions. We just didn't know how set in stone they were, as Biden made it seem last night. And really, the overall reaction has been some disappointment um, from moderates and also progressives who, for example, really, really want to make sure that cutting prescription drug costs is included in this bill. Biden didn't really mention it last night, and it's something that Democrats are still working for. Uh, but that could be a really big disappointment. Um, some things like, for example, that child tax credit, how long it's going to last or paid family leave. There are some Democrats who are passionately trying to make sure it lasts more than those four weeks. But it seems like that concession won't be made. So it is a frustrating time. Democratic leaders for a long, for several weeks have been saying, you know, we're reaching a point where difficult decisions will have to be made. And you're seeing those reactions. But it's not, it's not enough for any member so far to have drawn a red line and say, I'm absolutely not going to vote for this. Mm-hmm. Democrats, from the beginning, when they've been trying to even start discussing this Build Back Better agenda and what it would look like. They have they have been united in the fact that this they see this as their only opportunity possibly to pass any kind of reforms. This is likely, you know, the House could flip and have a Republican majority soon. So Democrats, the lesson from the Obama administration and the Affordable Care Act days is we have to pass as much as possible because who knows when we'll have the majority in the House, right. the Senate, and the presidency. No matter how thin those margins are, we just have to pass something. Right. And I, I keep saying that on paper, a presidential term is four years. But in in 
reality in 2021 reality. It really is just one year. Let me, we're running out of time, but I got to get you quickly on the January 6th select committee. Um, the committee voted to hold Steve Bannon in criminal contempt. The full house voted to um, hold Steve Bannon in criminal, uh, uh, with uh, uh, criminal content, uh, contempt and got, if I remember right, eight Republicans to vote with Democrats to make that happen. What is, what happens next? Yeah, so there were surprisingly nine Republicans, two of which actually weren't part of that impeachment 10 group who you usually expect to vote um, in favor of things like this. But, you know, the committee is moving very quickly. And yesterday was definitely a signal, not just by this committee, but also the full House to any witness that they might call forward that they aren't holding back at passing or at holding votes to hold someone in contempt. So as of right now, I think the committee has subpoenaed dozens of people who have uh, allegedly helped coordinate, uh, you know, stop the steal, social media groups to just try and gather information. And so far, everyone besides Bannon has been cooperative to a point. Uh, but we should expect likely that they call forward and they ask more people um, involved for more documents. If they don't cooperate, then they will be subpoenaed. Likely, we should expect some closed door depositions in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, there still remains the question of whether this committee will bring forth Republicans currently serving in Congress, like House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, to uh, testify in any sort of way. So that's some of the couple of things to expect in the next couple of weeks, but they're moving quickly. Right, right. And, and also Congressman Jim Jordan, uh, and also looming large over all of this, particularly on the Steve Bannon criminal contempt, is what the attorney general is going to do about it. So we're all sitting on, on the edge of our seat wondering what he's going to do. Mariana Sotomayor, we are out of time. Thank you very, very much for coming back to First Look. Always fun to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in a moment. Stay with us. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, Hugh Hewitt and Donna Edwards. Hugh, Donna, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, John. Thank you. Great, Great to be with you. Okay, so as I was talking with Mariana Sotomayor um, moments ago, last night, CNN Town Hall with the President of the United States, where he put everything out there. You know, she and you know, congressional reporters for weeks, if not months, have been trying to get hard and fast outlines of what the reconciliation bill would look like. The president went out there and talked specifics. I would like to hear from both of you, but Donna, Donna first, your reaction to what you heard out of the president in terms of the specifics of what this reconciliation deal could look like. Well, uh, President Biden put it all out on the table. I, I was so impressed, frankly, that he is, you can tell he's deeply engaged in the details. He knows where all of the members of the Democratic caucus are in the House and the Senate. And um, he laid out, you know, some people are not going to be happy with it, but I think he laid out what looks like the framework for uh, the bill that will ultimately pass, the priorities around uh, child care and the child tax credit. Um, you know, we know that he ditched uh, the community college provision, which was near and dear uh, to his heart, saying he'd give up something in order to get some other things. We saw the uh, parameters of what might be the uh, the climate um, 
provisions in the in the package i thought it was actually quite a robust description of where this is headed and um you know we know that he wants a bill sooner rather than later and it's important for democrats to come on board to do that and it sounded like um there has been real progress made in the negotiations so hugh in the town hall many times you know the president mentioned senator manchin uh, and senator cinema uh, about what they're for and what they're not for and how they're you know making it impossible to um, do this for this much amount of time and i guess my question to you is how much fun is it for you and other conservatives to watch democrats negotiate amongst themselves like this in public oh it's a great occasion for joy but i have to confess uh, you two are being good reporter analysts being very diligent i'm wearing my browns tie because last night on thursday night football the cleveland browns beat the denver broncos in cleveland i've been a season ticket holder for the browns since 99 so i didn't watch a minute of it i had to watch it on replay this morning when i got up to do my radio show and i'll tell you Joe Manchin should do the uh, the town hall. Kristen Cinema, Kristen Cinema, and Joe Manchin should be there because the president basically said, as I watched it on replay, it's up to them. And Joe Manchin gave a big goose egg this week. I'm comfortable with zero, Bernie. They got into it, so I am. When your opponents are busy destroying themselves, don't get in the way. But I mean, okay, but yeah, Senator Manchin and Senator and Senator Sanders got into it. I, the reporting says it was a. Uh, and an, an F-bomb fueled um, argument between yes. the two of them. But reporting this morning says as a result of that sort of cathartic release between the two of them, that there is movement, positive movement happening uh, between the two of them on certain things that um, the two of them do, <laughs> uh, don't, don't agree on. Donna, do you think that they will indeed come to some sort of agreement if not today, on a framework, if not today, in time for two things, the president's trip overseas um, to the, the COP24 meeting or COP26 meeting, and in time for the November 2 Virginia gubernatorial election. Wow, that's a lot of deadlines packed into one week. Um, I think that I think it's going to be complicated to um, to do that. They may be able to come up with a framework. I hate to put, you know, these deadlines because they're somewhat artificial when you're in the midst of negotiations. Um, but time is running out for Democrats. They do not have all of the time in the world. And frankly, if Democrats want to be successful, whether it's on November 2nd with uh, the Virginia governor's race or it's in 2022, they need to just get this done because they won't even have time left to campaign on it if they continue to run out the clock. So, you know, I liken this, you know, on the football analogy, we are in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl and really in the two minute warning. So Democrats really got to get going on this. There's way too much football talk going on in this conversation for me to even keep up. Hugh, let's keep talking about the Virginia governor's race the Monmouth University poll that came out this week was, uh, it just sent shockwaves through the Commonwealth because it showed that Terry McAuliffe, popular former governor, Democrat of Virginia, is tied with Glenn Youngkin, the Republican um, Donald Trump endorsed candidate uh, for governor in the Commonwealth. 
why, from your perspective, why is Terry McAuliffe having such a hard time pulling away from Glenn Youngkin in the polls, at least? Pulling away? He's, he's drowning. Uh, I feel very good about this. Be, beware of Greeks bearing gifts and Republicans commenting on Democrat-Republican races, right? So uh, adjust for the lie of the green. Mix my metaphor there on you, Jonathan. <laughs> I think uh, Glenn Youngkin is winning and handily because of the um, education issue. And there's an old rule in politics. And Donna's running one, so she knows this. If you're talking about your opponent's attack when people are voting, that's not a good sign. And in Virginia, everything has been about Terry McAuliffe not only stepping on a rake, but stepping on the same rake seven times, parents and education and school boards. He did it in their last debate. He came out with the perfunctory, Glenn Youngkin's taking me out of context, which they immediately bounced back at him like a hot, uh, another hot take, another rake in the face. Education, education, education. Who controls education? And did the Virginia public school systems do well during the COVID shutdown? The answers are parents control and no. And that is fueling Glenn Youngkin's search. Um, Donna, I, I, I take Hugh's point about um, Terry McAuliffe's comments on education um, at that, uh, and you know, having to explain it at that last debate. But after that debate, Glenn Youngkin had to uh, explain why it was folks were pledging allegiance to a flag that flew during the insurrection at a rally for him. He was not there. Let's put it out there. He was not there. But why do you, do you think do you think that that was something that played to McCullough's benefit? One and two. Does does that incident, which gave um, Terry McAuliffe an opportunity to once again tie Glenn Youngkin to Donald Trump, is that will that be helpful to McAuliffe in overcoming what has been, you know, the political narrative that there's an enthusiasm gap among Democrats uh, for Terry McAuliffe, and that is also why he is, to use uh, Hughes' descriptor, drowning in the polls. Well, look, I, I think when you have a neck and neck race, you can't really describe it as drowning. But I, I do think that um, Democrats, Terry McAuliffe, are going to have to um, really work on turnout for this election. This was always going to be a turnout election. You know, you have an election coming off of a presidential year. Um, you've got to go out there in Virginia and get all of those voters out. And so that was the challenge that um, the McAuliffe campaign was facing and that Democrats are facing in Virginia. Um, but that was always true. I, I think that, um, you know, Terry McAuliffe has been right to point the linkage between Donald Trump and Glenn Youngkin um, around issues dealing with face masks and vac vaccinations and wrapping himself up with, especially during the, the primary season, with Donald Trump. And, you know, you can't get away from that. I mean, Trump has already said, you know, my eyes are on Glenn Youngkin. And so they are tied at the hip. And I think it's important to remind Virginia voters of what they're going to get. And that flag on the heels of, you know, the tragedy in Charlottesville, I think Glenn Youngkin is in a really dangerous place here. And I think it's right for Terry McAuliffe to point out what that, what that danger is. But they've got to get on every door and every voter to turn out voters um, and maybe to eat, uh, buy a narrow win in Virginia. Uh, Donna, I, uh, I kind of know what, what Hugh will say to this, but I want to ask you this question. 
if Terry McAuliffe loses, or conversely, if Glenn Youngkin wins, is that, I'm trying to remember who said this, this saying that if Terry McAuliffe were to lose, it's not only, you know, the, the, the canary in the coal mine is dead, meaning Democrats in 2022 um, are in deep, to use a technical term, doo-doo. <laughs> Do you agree with that? I don't know if I agree with that, but look, I have always thought that 2022, um, you know, if you just look historically, is a real is going to be a tough year for Democrats. There's no question about it, and it begs the question of uh, Democrats really being aggressive about getting this uh, Build Back Better plan and the infrastructure plan uh, passed so that it can be at people's doors. And um, so, I, you know, there's a lot that is going on with the. Um, you know, with the McCullough campaign, I think that they can uh, pull it out in the end, but I don't know that that is necessarily a referendum on what's going to happen in, in 22. It's going to be a tough 2022 election anyway. So late, la uh, late last night, um, a spokesperson for the uh, family of the late Secretary of State, Colin Powell, announced that a memorial service will be held at the National Cathedral on November 5th at noon. It'll be an invitation only memorial service. Uh, Hugh, I'll start with you and then come to you, uh, Donna. This just, you know, America lost a giant when, um, with the passing of Secretary Powell, first black national security advisor, first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, secretary, first black secretary of state, uh, Hugh, what did our nation lose when Colin uh, Powell left us? A great American, a statesman. Uh, I was at the Nixon Library, which I'm the president of, with Brett Baer on Monday night when Secretary Powell passed. And uh, the show began with a, a picture of Colin Powell as a White House fellow with Richard Nixon. So take that in. He always credited that White House fellowship with giving him a taste for the Beltway, which he can't, you know, he ended up turning into a complete mastery of it. And for 50 years, Colin Powell has served the country with grace and dignity and uh, at personal risk because he served, I believe, two tours in Vietnam, got saved three people off of a burning helicopter, as I recall the story. And uh, I know that some people used it as the occasion to bring up the WMD controversy. He gave it his best shot. Uh, the world believed there were WMD in Iraq. And I think Secretary Powell is the finest example of an American who served America whenever his president, no matter which party, asked him to. Um, one, one second, Donna. Um, Hugh, um, you mentioned that Secretary Powell served, with great, served this nation with grace and dignity, and I agree with you 100%. What I would love to know from you is your reaction to the undignified and ungraceful statement issued by former President Trump on the passing of Colin Powell? Unfortunate. Uh, I really do wish, uh, if you don't have anything nice to say about someone who's just died, don't say anything. Because look, most of the country, 95% of the country joins with me and every other Republican I know to say there was a man. And throw, to, to throw pebbles at a battleship is not effective nor um, Self-serve, I just, I don't get it. But in any event, my approach has been, I talk about Colin Powell, not what people say about Colin Powell, either the critics from the left or the right. 
Um, Donna, I would argue that there were um, many, many, many Democrats who also mourn Colin Powell. Oh, they did, absolutely. Please, well, and, and you know what? I let me just say, I count myself mm -hmm. among them. You know, Jonathan, I grew up in a military family. My dad, thirty years in the Air Force. Um, I know in our family, we looked at Colin Powell and his uh, his character, his leadership, his service, and you know, despite you know differences of opinion about um, about Iraq and WMD, that really pales in comparison to the long-standing leadership and service of Colin Powell. Um, I went to Wake Forest University and recently Colin Powell and Madeleine Albright spoke on our character and leadership uh, council on which I serve, talking about the importance of moral clarity uh, when it comes to leadership. Um, he spoke at one of our, our commencement addresses. Um, I think that he stands tall among Americans and uh, as has been suggested in our friends group, we think in this discussion about how we rename some of these um, um, military facilities, mm. uh, uh, taking away those Confederate names, that Colin Powell's name uh, should be on one of those facilities someplace. And so I hope uh, that the lasting legacy of Colin Powell is going to be his clarity, his leadership, his character, and that we honor him in the way that we should uh, for his service. We've got less than three three minutes um, to go. I'm just wondering, Hugh, is that era that um, Secretary Powell um, was a part of, grew up in, uh, represented, is that era gone? Can we get back to those ideals that, that drove statesmen like um, Secretary Powell? Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more with Donna's. I hadn't thought of that, and you're absolutely right, Donna. Uh, Fort, Fort Powell should be somewhere. There ought to be four of them, and many high schools, and many colleges, and, and many statues. I don't think it's ever gone away, John. There, people forget. I was in the Reagan White House. Everyone remembers the Reagan years now with a, a glow. It was brass-knuckled, knocked down, kick them in the, in the stomach politics. And Colin Powell did that in D.C. as well as anyone with Richard Armitage. So, yes, he's a great American, but he fought through the same stuff that we are fighting through today because it's the mm -hmm. only way in a free society to reach the dialectical end. And Donna, 30 seconds left. Well, look, I, I think that um, Colin Powell stands in his leadership, but I think that there are many uh, members of the military, people who are in public service, who stand in that gap too. And we need to begin to elevate them so that we can reclaim uh, the kind of uh, moral leadership that we've that we've always had and have embraced. And Colin Powell represents uh, represented that. And you know, we need more of that in our public life. Yeah, more of it in our public life and more people doing it publicly rather than behind the scenes. Donna Edwards, Hugh Hewitt. As always, we got to go just when the conversation gets starts getting good. Thanks for coming, coming back to First Look. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Thank John. You. See you, Donna. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.